Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the CollectingCars.com podcast with Chris Harris and Edward Lovett. Hello and welcome to another Collecting Cars podcast. It's a special one for me because as you might have noticed, this is a chance for me and Edward to sit down and talk to people we want to talk to. Um, and this one I wanted to do forever. Uh, my personal, probably my personal motoring hero, Martin Brundle. Uh, and that is at Martin Brundle F1 for... Instagram and he is at mbrundlef1 on Twitter but you probably already follow him on Twitter because he's a legend anyway and we've got at Edward Lovett with me here Martin thank you so much for letting us come and sit with you my pleasure I was really um, overwhelmed when you asked me to do it actually uh, what did you, you DM'd me on Twitter, I think. I did. I just... I, I even saw it. I realised that there's probably only about five people that I really, really want to get in front of these microphones and you're one of them because I think um, your transition from being a racing driver into a broadcaster is, is fascinating. Uh, the way that you've communicated the sport and the sense of, of speed and the dynamics of driving in the cars revolutionised, I think, the way we all watch F1 in the UK and wherever else you're broadcast. But I want to go back to the start, really, and ask you about your formative years and get the sense of your relationship with cars and motorsport, and then we can maybe get to your later career afterwards. But it's that early stuff that I'm not sure everyone knows about, because we think of you as being the F1 driver that flipped upside down in Melbourne, ran back to his car, then the Murray years and where you are now. But take me back or take us back to the beginning. When did you first drive a car? I grew up at a garage. My parents uh, used car a lot, basically. Our first car that we, my brother and I had, I was about seven. It was an Austin A35, a black one. It was a bit of a wrecker. Um, we took it down to a local field uh, just near our garage in West Lynn, near Kings Lynn in Norfolk. And... We sometimes drive it down there ourselves, actually. Um, but we we blag a mechanic all day long, and in between servicing some cars or fixing something, eventually somebody would give in and take us down there. Um, went round and round and round this field in a big oval. Um, 
and that's how we learned it. My brother had to kneel on the seat while the mechanic did the pedals. <laughs> I could do the pedals and everything, but I had to look through the steering wheel. And that was it. That, that's how it all started. And I just absolutely loved it. And then when I was 12, my best mate at school, Rusty, said, we are, I'm, I want to try and do some racing at Pot Row on the old grass track stuff. And I said, I'd like to do that. So I found a Ford Anglia down the far end of the used car. Like we got, we got a bigger garage by now. And um, took the windows out, took all the interior out, put the radiator in the rear window and, and used as many hoses and bits of metal as I could to reconnect it back to the engine, welded the diff up, um, obviously t- took all the glass out. Um, and that was it. And then I went and told my dad that uh, <laughs> we needed to take that one out of stock. But it was kind of a, they were all rusty down. So I want to age you, what, what year are we now? So I was born in 1959. Um, and so what am I by now? Uh, 12. Early 70s. Yeah, early 70s this is, yeah. Um, I'd been going to Grand Prix. My uncle took me to Brands Hatch in, uh, in the 1960s and Silverstone. Um, so they were, they were my earliest memories of... Stan- First driver you saw... That made that captivated you. That made you think, I want to be him one day. My uncle was very into Uncle Keith was very into Jackie Stewart. So every time he came round, um, uh, and Jim Clark, of course, and I, I liked Jim Clark and uh, Jackie Stewart as well, but particularly Graham Hill because mm. I remember I used to see him on the Sports Personality of the Year doing a little sketch with Jackie. I thought it was funny, and it was you know it was so hard to see motorsport back in those days, wasn't it? Um, and even through the 70s and 80s for that matter so they're, they're, they're my earliest memories of motorsport and, and of driving and I did the grass track for a while and then I won one day in, um, in my angler I won the grand final where they put the under 1500ccs up against the over 1500ccs and I was going round with a, a checkered flag out of the window still really could barely see uh, through the steering wheel let alone over it and a guy who I'd beaten in this grass track racing, um, took umbrage at it and reversed around the track in his Zephyr 6 and wrote me off, basically, and then came after me with a crowbar in the paddock. Because my dad, <laughs> my dad used to drop us off. <laughs> it dropped me off in the transit van in the morning with a, we had a, what they call an ambulance thing that used to be where you just put the front wheels in the, and tow it along. I mean, it was a race, it was a, a banger racer, really. And I'd run the car for the day, then Dad had come and pick me up. As Dad came to pick me up, having been at the garage all through Sunday flogging cars, as he did, um, there's this guy coming at me with a crowbar. And I mean, I was, I was about fifth, well, I was 15 at the time. I'd been doing this for a few years. And we decided to get out of there. So I fibbed about my age and went Speedworth Hot Rod Racing, uh, Yarmouth, Ipswich, did one, one event at Wimbledon. Um, and uh, where else? With Foxhall Heath, uh, wasn't it? And uh, Great Yarmouth. All the all the short overs. All racing. short overs on the loose. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, some of it, uh, Ipswich and Yarmouth and Wisbridge were uh, hard surfacing. Wimbledon was was on the rough on the loose. Yeah. Do you think that starting off on the loose gave you a sense of car control that might be missing for some youngsters now because they start off with very sticky tyres on on good asphalt, but. Like Nick Tandy's the same, isn't he? He started off in short ovals, and it must give you a sense of car control when a car starts to lose traction, lose grip. I think in hot rod racing, because it's a no-contact sport and there might be 30 cars in a quarter-mile oval, you, you've really got to have great car control, be able to go around, spend three laps going around the outside of somebody, basically, you know, and work your way through the pack. Uh, I thought it was great racing. I really love it. Um, I used to save up for the kart magazine, let alone the car. I never, I never raced a kart. I never raced a Formula Ford 1600. No, I just didn't have that kind of money available to us, really. So the banger racing and the 
but it's upmarket banger racing, really grass track racing was was the best I could do. And the stock cars uh, and the hot rods as well. You know, you could you could buy an Escort and put a 1600 BDA in it or something and, uh, you know, and go race it. It was great. So how did you transition into proper white-collar motorsport? You've gone from the, the more blue-collar stuff. How did you emerge in, in, the, in the posher format? Well, we had a Toyota dealership. And I remember going down and you waited every Thursday morning, didn't you, for Autosport to come through the front door. I was going through it, and there was this advert in the back for the Samurai Toyota team, the the truck that used to be a, a Ford, a Great Britain rallycross truck in its day, it had its tuned up engine, it's an amazing thing. Um, and the two Celica GTs of Win Percy and and Wizzo Williams, uh, bless him, he's, we've just lost Wizzo, haven't we? Yeah. Um, and I just thought it was amazing. My dad loved it, and he was, he did a bit of rallying. My mum did some autocross as well. And we went down to Brands Hatch to see these race, and, and Wynn and Wizzo drove me around the paddock. They really, it was the cars that were the end of the season. And I stood on the outside of Paddock Hill Bend at 16, and they came through, and it frightened the life out of me. I'm like, Dad, I can't do this. Cannot do this. Anyway, we found a way. So we, we financed, we put on HP the truck as a breakdown truck for the Toyota dealership, and we financed the two Salikas as demonstrators. So all on HP, the lot. And we got away with that. So dad rally crossed one and I raced the other in the British Touring Car Championship. I think we spent about three grand on the whole year, finished fifth or something overall and third in class, stuck it on pole in my first. I had to get my license first in, in some super saloon races. So that's how I got into circuit racing. When what I, year when, was that, do you think? 1977, exactly. Okay. And was that production class? Was that... Oh, yeah, it was, was in the two under, classes, weren't there? Yeah, I was in... I was in the under 1600s, then there was the 1300s, wasn't there? Richard Longman and his minis, and, and that was when all the Capris and Rovers were out there, you know, yeah. Gordon Spice, your dad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, your father would have been there, wouldn't yeah. he? Yeah. Would, have yeah. would, it? would have three grand got you the same, uh, in today's money, got you, uh, got you a season in, uh, <laughs> I mean, in British Touring Cars? I mean, the cost of it now, three grand wouldn't get you one wheel rim, I wouldn't have thought. Uh, it's uh, terrifying. A bit of hospitality for the weekend, maybe. <laughs> So, so you've you've demonstrated you can pedal. At what point did you realise? I, mean, I hope you did realise that that you might be a bit quicker than the others. When did you think I've got this? Because there must there is a moment, isn't there, where you think oh, I can do this a bit better than them? Well, I remember standing in a queue to, for the telephone box um, in Alton Park, and I just stuck it on pole. And there was a guy going because obviously no mobile phones in 1977 guy going you never believe this this is teenage kid on pole position and of course it it was me um and i stood in the queue waiting for the telephone box to ring my mum and dad and tell them i'd stuck it on pole position um so i thought oh, that's that's nice somebody's somebody's no, talking about me that's, <laughs> that's, that's dc's that's trying to get cool talk go away he's, he's in town he's in town <laughs> he wants to know he's if i'm sniffing for beer if, isn't I'm he? Gonna, if i'm gonna make it or not um, he's looking for the podcast go- gossip <laughs> yeah i'll switch that off can we we, this doesn't edit, it's does it? Oh, no, no, so we can't. We can't edit. It's but fine. just just press uh, the button yeah, in the top no, corner. Yeah, I need to send somebody else a message. Answer as well, it. That Answer I it. This is all part of the podcast. Yeah. Before I um, before I start this, I should have just dropped somebody a message. We just just wait while we'll Martin wait. communicates with yeah. Mr. David Coulthard is in town. Has uh, the microphone under his chin. I'm busy at the moment, DC. Is he ever not thirsty? <laughs> he's a good lad. He's the president of the British Racing Drivers Club, I'll have you know. He's a yeah, he's fantastic. <laughs> Is he on speed dial he's, one? He's yeah. he's the only person that approaches you in the ability to communicate 
the sport through words, I think. He's done a great job. Yeah, he's, uh, we travel together, me and DC. We, um, yeah, we room together actually quite a lot, which, are, which confuses terrible, a lot of people. Terrifying thought. And uh, it's, uh, as I used to do with Blundell, actually, but like half the cost of the rooms, we just have a lot of fun, really. <laughs> just have a look. And that started when me and Blundell were on ITV, Marky, uh, my, my blood brother, effectively. Um, and we were talking to each other through the wall of a hotel room, <laughs> chatting for ages and ages. And I think we'd both pay 1,200 quid for the room each. And I'm like, man, why don't we just share a room, get a twin bedded room? And, and everybody's totally suspicious. And they're like, but DC, you can afford your own room. Yes, correct. Yeah, but it's Martin, boarding you can school. afford your it's own room. School. Yes, I can. But we just have such a laugh. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, there you go. I got the message away. Um, yeah. Where were we? So, we're, so you, you've just heard someone speak about you oh, the third person it. down a telephone. This, right? This yeah, kid, I'm right? in a queue. At so, Park. so, 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 how? So, at that point, you must be thinking. I've asked you. When did you realise? Did you have a? Did you have a, a moment then when you thought I can do this better than the others? I don't think I, I. I raced for fun, and I was still a Toyota dealer, still selling Toyotas on the Monday or Tuesday, as soon as I could get back from a Grand Prix. When I first became a Formula One driver uh, in 1984, so it was all a bit of a mystery to me. The some key things happened. I wrote a letter to Tom Walkinshaw when I was 19, and I said to him, "I think I'm going to be a top racing driver. Will you please give me a chance? I want to drive in the BMW County Championship." Your, your championship at the Norfolk round um, at Snetterton. And he put me in the car. And I had an amazing dice with Frank Sitton and Andy Rouse. And then the next one was the Gunnar Nilsson uh, trophy. At, um, and your dad, again, Peter yeah, Lover. Yeah, yeah. Peter Tom, Lover Tom was, was my also, godfather. You know, if you, if, of course. Yeah. And I'll, yeah. say, I'll say to people listening now, go and go onto YouTube and, and type in the BMW County Championship. There is the most extraordinary video on there, yeah. which is introduced as if you're all knights of the realm. Yeah. And you're and, and he, he harketh from Wessex. And they've, <laughs> yeah. they've written it like it's it was Shakespeare. A, it was, it's it, utterly bizarre It video. was done like a jousting sort yeah. of competition. And, and at Donington... I put it on pole and cleared off. And there was Hanstuck, Alan Jones, and Nigel Mansell was in this championship, and all sorts of drivers. And I just disappeared. And, and overnight, it put me it put me on the map. And, and Tom, I raced again then with Tom, pretty much uh, until 1997 in the in the Nissan. Um, so we started this in '79, and I raced with him through all those years. And um, and that was it. Overnight, from writing one letter to a guy I'd never met, and he and he gave me this chance, and and boom, that was it. I, I was away. Then Tom put me in the works Audi, and nobody ever believed me, but my teammate was Sir Sterling Moss. Um, Sterling turned up at the first round. I think it was um, not Cadwell, Mallory Park, and he was really unhappy. He didn't want to drive this car, if the truth be known. But he was, uh, he was in it. We were the team BP. I remember first time I met him, we were getting changed in the gents' toilets. That the, must be surreal. In the BRDC bungalow they used to have at the entrance to Silverstone. And I thought it was a bit surreal. Sterling turned up and they'd spelt his name incorrectly. They'd spelt his name as Pound Sterling on the side of the car. <laughs> <laughs> so he hit the rev limiter on that, understandably. And um, yeah, that was, uh, that was it. Um, so BP... Then took me into Formula 3, eventually. And then I got fired out of that because they thought uh, Calvin Fish would be a better guy because this kid was coming along called Ian Senna. 
Um, and then I remember sitting in Dave Price's office one day, who, who ran me in 82 in Formula 3, because we had BP sponsorship on the Audi, and then it, uh, with Les Thacker, that took me to to this Formula 3 gig. And I was all right at that, but I I seemed to suffer from a bit of pressure. Um, and then all of a sudden, I just took off, um, but still got fired at the end of the season. And Pricey was like, Marty son, I ain't got nothing for you, mate. Um, uh, I'm going to ring somebody you might have. And that was Eddie Jordan. So I went straight from there to Eddie Jordan's um, and stayed overnight at Silverstone. And we set off to fight Ayrton Senna with, I just won the Grovewood Award for Commonwealth Driver of the Year, five grand. Sorry, Commonwealth Driver of the Year. Commonwealth Driver of the Young Driver of the Year. What an amazing statement. Yeah. And uh, so I gave Eddie the five grand. I painted his best friend, Sebastian Ballam's Toyota truck in our Toyota paint shop myself. And we had this Citroen familial seven-seater estate on the forecourt we couldn't give away to anybody. We, well, we gave it to the team in the end. That became the crew, crew bus, effectively. And we set off. We set, I think we had 22 grand one way and another for the start of the season to fight Senna. And Eddie was brilliant at ducking and diving. We borrowed 10 grand off Tom where we had, had no ability ever to pay back. But he got, he got his money back out of me later on with a lot of Jaguar victories. And... Um, and and it was great for me, of course, as well. And then we got all sorts of sponsors. Eddie blagged free rent at Silverstone for putting Silverstone on the side of the car. And we literally, if ever I went to the factory, I'd stop at Allied Irish Bank in Northampton and put 250 quid in or 500 quid or whatever I could muster up of my car sales commission for the week. And that's how we went racing. The Eddie Jordan thing is fascinating. I, having worked with him myself... He's a polarising figure. He's a Marmite figure when he presents on F1. But as a human being to hang around with, he is about the most engaging human being I've ever met in my life. Can you just confirm that? He is a unique individual. There's no <laughs> doubt about it. I do love Eddie. And he gave me a chance. And, and also, he was struggling at the time. So we did, we did a lot for each other, which I'll never forget. And of course, I drove for him again in Formula 1 for my last season in Formula 1. So uh, all the time in the world for him. He is such a character. You can't, you can't keep him down. And... He is. I, 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 he's not Marmite with me. I, I just like the guy. And not, and not with people. People that seem to be consistent. People know him and yeah. known him for a while. Yeah. and have been through something with him. Would want to go into battle with him. Yeah. But certainly the, the casual viewer often thinks, "Oh, not him again." But <laughs> I, and I and I I regularly have to say, if you met him, you'd love him. He's a great character, and he's done very well for himself. Uh, he starts whispering, doesn't he? And then, why are you whispering to me, Eddie? <laughs> Just talk to me. Eddie does like it. You think there's something really dodgy going on, but it's not. He just whispers a lot. So the your your year battling Senna is, is well documented, but um, I suppose at the time you didn't realise the significance of that part of your life, did you? It was just another young kid you were battling he, who would go on to be one of the greats. Yeah, I wish I'd have... I mean, I remember talking to him at length, you know, in the paddock at Cadwell. And, I mean, we we had a bit of a stressful year because... He thought the system was against him, uh, the British system, as he would eventually... All the traits I saw in Formula 3, I saw in Formula 1 with Ayrton, clearly gifted. Everybody assumed he would wipe the floor in the championship, and he did for the first nine rounds, until I kind of hit rock bottom and came back at him. And, uh, you know, it elevated me into Formula 1 straight away the following year. He he was going to Formula 1 anyway, wasn't he? Um, But he, he was just had this extraordinary talent for knowing where the grip was and uh, you know I always say he knew where the grip was before and during the corner where the rest of us knew where the grip was during and after the corner and I'll never forget at Silverstone uh, 
in the, it was pouring with rain and we we uh, I got the better start as I used to quite often do I led down to Stowe when Stowe and Club were really good corners and really fast stuff and he went down the outside it was absolutely tipping it down and I thought he'd gone off I thought, see you wouldn't want to be out there mate as I'm jockeying my car through the apex of Stowe Corner and then he did the karting line, as I believe it's known, because I'd never kart raced at the time, and I still haven't really, other than you know, sort of corporate fun carts. And he came out in front of me. I'm like, how did he do that? And he knew where all that clag was, all the rubbish was on the outside of the track, and it was a long way round there. And anyway, a guy called Kiki Mansilla crashed, and they red flagged the race, so we had to regroup, and so it became a two-part race. As we went round to regroup for the start for the grid. I thought, I'm going to try Senna's line. Went down towards Stoke Corner, steaming in, down the outside, hit a puddle of water, went down the grass, skimmed the barrier, just kept it all together somehow. <laughs> Frightened the life out of myself. Got back on the grid. This time Senna beat me away and he won the race. I finished second. And I said to him on the podium, your line into Stowe in the second part of the race uh, didn't work, did it? He went, I don't know. I didn't try it. It was too wet. <laughs> And the, the guy had just got this um, this incredible innate sense of, hadn't he, when those qualifying laps he used to do. and um, But he was he was genius. Uh, and we, we had a really good fight. He ended up on my, he parked his car on my shoulder once. I remember at Snetterton, he, we came off Sear Corner. Um, and I stayed left. I'm thinking, if you're going past me, mate, you're going the, I was on pole. If you're going past me, you're going the long way round. He decided not to go the long way round. He decided to come half on the grass, half down the, you know, half the car on the grass, half the car on the track, the half a car's width I'd left him. The last I remember of him was seeing the rivets in the undertray of his, of his rolt. And as he landed, he kept his foot in and tried to T-bone me going into the, what is now called Brundle, ironically. Yeah. Right <laughs> uh, and, um, and missed me. But it got it got a bit tense. It really did get tense. He had his license endorsed a couple of times, and he felt. But I, I Joe, we had a race at Silverstone where I was going for points. Would it have made it might have made the I might have won the championship in the end if I'd have gone for those. We had two races in one: a British Championship and a European Championship. But to get British points, you had to be on the British tyres, which are much slower. Yeah. And about half an hour to go, final practice and quali, I said to Eddie. Let's just let's go. Let's go European. This is not doing. You know, we're we're miles ahead of anybody else in the British one, but we're about tenth on the grid. What are we doing? Floundering around down here. Senna's got us beaten anyway. Put the tire. Put the Yokohamas on. Stuck it on pole. Senna flew off the track, trying to stay with me in the race. Uh, and two things happened. One is, I suddenly believed I could beat in Senna. That's crucial, isn't it? And the other thing that happened is he suddenly realised I could beat him. Mm. And and that, that just turned the season around. And I then started winning race after race. He crashed, then he crashed some more, then we crashed together and he finished second behind me. We had an intense duel at Donington one day. And, and that's how I ended up going into the last round, actually one point ahead of him. So you then realise, you must at this point realise that F1 is your destiny. You can get there because you've proved yourself in F3. But it wasn't an easy journey straight into it, was it? No, well, Ken Tyrrell had said he would give the top British driver in the Formula 3 Championship. Because luckily for me back then, you know, if you wanted to get to F1, you had to do British F3. Yeah. It was a, an easy portal, you know, maybe F2 as well. But um, it was so much easier for us then. And 
I guess it's getting a bit of structure again these days. Uh, but, but that was going to be me because me the only race me and Senna didn't win between us was when he landed on my shoulder, basically. Uh, at Alton Park with a mad move. Uh, and that's on YouTube as well. So Ken gave me a test. I went in, sat in front of Ken. I said, I've got, I want to drive for you, Mr. Tyrrell. I've got £150,000 worth of sponsorship. That's a lot of money back it, then. Yeah, it was. I didn't have anything. I hadn't, didn't have a pound. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought it's good what, number. I just thought it's what I ought to say, and I thought if I get into F one, I'll find it like we found it in F three the year before. I'll find it somehow. And then he tested me um, at Silverstone. And I went really fast, and uh, it was a, just a beautiful, crispy. You know those Silverstone no- November days when yeah. it's dry, cool, perfect, and I flew. Um, and then we went to Rio, and he tested me again. And he loved it because I was on a set of qualifiers and Derek Warwick, who was also there at the party last night, came up. Um, sorry, you don't, we didn't have the podcast on. We were talking about the Rat Pack reunion dinner we have every, <laughs> every December while we're all still breathing. Um, Derek came up behind me on a set of qualifiers in the Works Renault and I wouldn't yield. I just, got, I just blocked him because I didn't want him getting in the way of my, my qualifying lap. Ken loved all that sort of thing. Uh, but he hadn't got any sponsors. So he called me to his office, which was not a short drive from... Kingsland in Norfolk to uh, Ockham back in those days. Not, the M11 didn't exist, I don't think, did it? Uh, anyway, it was a long way, three and a half hours each way. I'll go down and see Ken. And I sat in his office and he said, uh, I haven't got any sponsorship. Okay, thank you. Sorry, sorry, that's not going to work then. He said, but I'm going to take you on anyway. And I, I, and I, I remember so clearly, um, early 84, I'm thinking... I really wanted to climb over the ceiling. I was so excited. I said, thank you. It's very kind of you. Thank you. He said, and I know you don't have £150,000. So actually, I'm going to pay you. 30. He paid me £30,000 all up. That included all my expenses. So the only money I made that year, especially after I smashed myself to bits in Dallas, was we used to get access to a Lorenzo Merck. We could... we. <laughs> And I made more money on the Mercedes that we all used to grab and going to get a load of Hugo Boss clothes for nothing when we drove over to get the Merc. And that was it. That's how it went on. So I I was kind of flat broke by the time I smashed myself up. So you mentioned that that first year you had a big shunt. Yeah, well, it started well, didn't it? I was fifth in the first race in Rio. That went down well. And that's when I got back and started selling cars. Uh, and realised I was actually now a racing a Formula One driver. I wasn't a Toyota, not a Toyota dealer, salesman. Not a Toyota dealer anymore, quite yeah. salesman. So um, then I finished second in Detroit. I mean, we had the nimble little Tyrrell, and then Ken was up to something with some ballast, but we actually got thrown out later on over a political thing about having an auxiliary fuel tank in the car, which was nonsense because we never even filled the actual fuel tank up. We had a little Cosworth DFV. Yeah, we didn't. We needed nothing like a full tank of fuel, but somehow, because Ken wouldn't vote on some turbo stuff, we got thrown out. So I don't actually exist that year. If you look, so at it's the, all been deleted. Yeah, I don't exist. So my second place uh, in Detroit, I've got the trophy at home, and alongside that trophy in my cabinet in Norfolk are the three screws that put my foot back on my leg <laughs> from the crash in Dallas. And Ken was trying to calm me down a bit, and I was so gung ho, I really. And Senna was a bit sniffy because I'd had a better start to F1 than he had as well. But And then, anyway, Ken got, Ken got called out. So I was actually in Harley Street, um, Harley Street Clinic or something like that. They'd found, they were going to chop my foot off in America and Sid Watkins stopped them doing that. That had been the end of it because we had clutch pedals back then, of course. Um, and they dragged me home. 
and it, this guy found a way with all of his mates and sending pictures around the world to, to put my foot back on my leg, which literally was just held on by the tube of skin. Uh, 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 in, and, when, and I tried, I got out of the car and tried to walk away because I didn't want to believe I'd, bro- I'd broken anything, which didn't help the case so either. Just folded it over, didn't yeah. it? Yeah. Oh, God. So uh, they did all that, and I'm, s- and I'm coming round full of painkillers and feeling a bit sorry for myself. And a, a guy called Barry Gill, very good, used to be yeah. a famous commentator. Somehow rang. I was in a private room in this clinic, got through, and uh, I can't do a northern accent, but Barry wanted to know if I got any comments about Tyrrell being thrown out of the world championship, and that's the first I heard of it. Oh. That was that was that was the beginning of that. Um, so then I had to. I did the Donington Truck Grand Prix a bit later on on crutches. I turned up with my leg in plaster on crutches. I nearly won that. Thank God I didn't. I didn't want to be. I didn't. I didn't want to. <laughs> be the first British Truck Grand Prix winner. <laughs> the brakes failed about So how long did it years. take to recover from that accident? In a way, I never recovered because I could never left foot brake. Yeah. Uh, and that became, when we went to paddle shift later on, left foot braking became essential, mm. ba- basically. And then, of course, we went to two, yeah, two pedal cars. So... Um, what was the articulation issue? You couldn't move your foot forward? Yeah. Is it... Is it Basically, I, yeah, it doesn't. The I got sort of half the articulation, but yeah. I had no finesse in my left foot. Yeah, so I, I always, I've always been a right foot breaker, um, and it also hindered me a little. I couldn't jog, I couldn't run a long way, so I had to find different ways to um, to stay fit uh, with row machines, with cross trainers, and with sort of running in sand any way I could because the ankle was awful uh, and remains so today, of course. So. Um, that that was I never really got my career back on track after that I was always sort of floundering around a bit and then when I finally did in 92 at Benetton up against this new kid Michael Schumacher um, and Flavio tells me once a year ever since then because he fired me at the end of the year because he thought Patrese would bring them a load of information about the Williams active suspension they were going active um, like we had no idea how good Michael Schumacher was. You did a brilliant job against him. We never should have fired you. I'm sorry. Oh, but, thanks, so, uh, I finally got my chance in '92 again through Tom Walkinshaw and Ross Braun, who had been driving that beautiful little '91 purple Jaguar, the XJR14, with the yeah. year before, um, to really get my career where it needed to be. And then I sort of I, I floundered after that. So the injury thing's fascinating because I think people that are interested in modern Formula One don't appreciate just how many injuries there were, even in your era. We look at the 50s and 60s and the awful deaths in the 70s as well. Mm. But you, the table of people you were with last night, you think of Blundell, Johnny Herbert, you, all of you suffered something life-altering, yeah. really. We had that conversation just last night. Derek Warwick said he never even broke a fingernail. He was a lucky one. But Johnny, of course, had the terrible crash in uh, F3000, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, Martin Donnelly was there. Uh, God, the picture, that picture. Yeah, that awful picture. You know, we all, we, most of us limp uh, of my era because we were basically put at the front of the car to counterbalance the weight of the engine and gearbox. Your, your ankles were in front of the axle yeah. line, some of them. Oh, way in front of it. And so actually all we had was, you know, two master c- plastic master cylinder reservoirs. Did you that think was about that when you... No. You didn't even think about it? I thought it was the height of safety, really. I was in a honeycomb Tyrrell that stopped somewhere about my elbow, didn't it? That 84 car. Yeah. I drove Senna's 94 MP44 uh, recently. That was in, good piece. That was great. In piece. Sao Paulo. I loved that. And that was considered a very safe car. Yet almost all of your upper body was out, out of the car. And you think, how do we ever survive 
any accident at any time. <laughs> and if, but if you get into that Seneca today, how do you how do you feel? It, you, you, well, first of all, it was beautifully analog, yeah. so I, I loved it. Um, and to drive Senna's car in his home city, it's not that particular car didn't ever race there because the race was in Rio back in in ninety four. But uh, when that car was dominating, but um, it was a, an extraordinary experience, I must say. Uh, but you did feel quite exposed in the car, and I mean, I'm five foot eight, eighty kilos. I could not, have, if I'd have been a centimetre bigger in width or height, I would not. I don't know how I'd have driven it, if I'm honest. So S- tight. So. To go back to the, to the Formula One career, so you, you've 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 survived a, a bad accident. You've got yeah. your limbs working again. Yeah. Where did you go from there? I well, I sort of eighty six. Ken never really had the money, so every car was just an evolution of the last year's chassis. And we stuck the Renault Turbo on the back of it, which was an extraordinary experience, where you'd be out of a morning, you know, free practice two with 800, 850 horsepower, get out. The next time you got in that same car with the same weight on a set of qualifying tyres, good for five miles, eight k's or something, you had twelve hundred and fifty horsepower in the same car. How bad was the fuel? We have stories about the the fuel that you guys had to use just being so bad that the guests weren't allowed in the garage when you were filling up. Yeah, it was full of toluene and horrible stuff. It wasn't a problem for the drivers; it was a problem for the guys who had to put the fuel tanks in. It was terrible stuff. And the cars just used to melt, basically, but they would close off all the waste gates. And you would literally, it's like, because you couldn't fire the qualifiers up on the outlap. So you'd creep around, looking in your mirrors for a Senna lap, you know, for a day glow, uh, orange and white McLaren coming at you with a very bright yellow helmet in it, because nobody wanted to be the one who screwed up Senna's amazing pole lap. And um, so you'd creep around, creep around, you know, not wanting to fire the tires up. So you've got cold break, come into the pit straight, floor the throttle. And you imagine in Monaco, yeah. it was just like warp drive, Starship Enterprise, especially going up the hill into Casino Square. And of course, you get to the first corner and your brakes weren't really up to temperature. The front tyres were nowhere near temperature. And then, but the rears would be really good. Traction would be amazing on these qualifiers. Mid-lap, it would all be working. Everything would be sensational. Front and rear, brakes are up. You're, you're confident with the power. Towards the end of the lap, the rear tyres had completely shot to pieces. So, <laughs> so now they basically had a working life of half a lap or a yeah, quarter of a lap. That's it, and that's why you had to cruise out, literally, you know, roll out on the on the outlap. So it was insane, but it was also very. Don't you think that's just very F one? I think it's very F one, but I think I think all too often now people that watch F one view it with rose into spectacles, and. They that era the racing wasn't always that great. You know, you were struggling so much just to hang on to the bloody machines. There wasn't much processing power left to race. No, I completely agree with you. I say that to a lot of people today. Um, if you look back in those days, often the front to back of the grid of those that qualified. Remembering we had thirty nine cars in nineteen eighty nine, nearly twice as many as today. But it could be ten seconds yeah. from the front to the back of the grid, and then there's the ones that didn't qualify behind that. And the unpredictability back in those days was all about unreliability. It wasn't about amazing racing. Of course, you, you can remember Senna v. Mansell in Barcelona and all the other uh, great moments. But I think the racing's closer and better today than it, than it was back then. And, you know, and if you got to the end of a Grand Prix, I was talking to DC about this recently, you know, if you got to the end of a Grand Prix, it was a, it was a very pleasant surprise. <laughs> it really was back then now it's sort of almost a given isn't it if, if Hamilton what's Hamilton just had just to, without one incident he'd had 67 
consecutive point scoring races or something. I mean, <laughs> it, it, extraordinary now. When you talk about the tyres and going out on those, those outlaps, how would that be today? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Well, I think you still, to an extent, you still see them doing similar things of bringing the tyres in. It's a bit of voodoo, isn't it? I mean, how rubber reacts with the rate tarmac it's they almost food. have too much information don't they you see yeah. them when they have their burnout strategy yeah. on the line because they yeah. know it switches on on the third one or yeah and the cars are amazing so whereas you know if we arrived at the apex pointing in the right direction in the right gear that was a sort of a start <laughs> on that on that corner um now if they break a meter too early it kind of blown it you know yeah you guys uh, can always stuff that lap up so i i don't think there's any less talent or skill in fact i'm absolutely sure there's not um any less of anything they you know they're not they're not going to die like we we were probably going to die but their skill has now moved to away from just manhandling a car and surviving a lap surviving a grand prix or what have you to now driving with such incredible precision now is that exciting um, not always, but I do think we, you know, I, I, uh, this year just gone. I've enjoyed as much as many a year in Formula One, I must say. Yeah, uh, I agree. Cer- certainly the best hybrid year we've had, which is a bit of a backhander compliment, isn't it? But we, you know, the, the it's young guns, isn't it? Trying to knock the establishment off their pedestals and with amazing racing cars. So it, it is, I think it's, I mean, I've really enjoyed this year. So... You're in F1, sports cars. When do sports cars happen for you? Because pe- people don't know, apart from the specialists, know how successful you were in sports cars and how big a part of your career it was. Oh, it's massive, really. And I should have stayed in it and done more of it. But I always went back to F1, which which upset Tom because he wanted me to stay in sports cars. Um, and again, it's Tom Walkinshaw. He got the Jaguar deal. I remember going to Snetterton, 1985, the little green the green car, number 51, just with Castrol on it. Yeah. Um, we raced at Mossport. I led in Mossport for a while until Porsche got bored with that and turned the boost up and I think Ix and Bell came past me. Um, but we really, this is a beautiful little car made out of carbon and that was the beginning of the Group C era for, for Jaguar, of which I was a fundamental part of for, for a long time. How many and wins? I had 14 wins in sports car racing, 27 podiums, I think, something like that, a world championship. Daytona 24 hours, Le Mans 24 hours, and a lot of the great sports car races, the Fuji 1000K, Spa, Silverstone a couple of times, Brands Hatch 1000, Nürburgring, just, I I loved those races. I loved the way you could settle in 
And my son's exactly the same now. He's a, he's an outstanding endurance racer because you can get behind the wheel for two and a half hours and you just you just get into such a beautiful rhythm. You become one with the car and the track and you dial into everything. Um, so, yeah, I, I really probably should have just done sports car racing. It seemed to suit my driving style better. The one book I want to commission, I couldn't write it, is... The great Tom Walkinshaw, I won't say cheats, but the great Tom Walkinshaw rule interpretations. Are you willing to give us one? Uh, Tom, Tom, like all of them, would read the regulations once to see what they said and another time to see how I get around them. <laughs> um, he was inventive. There's no doubt about it. I'm not sure as a driver you knew much about them, frankly, because you... You were just driving the car. You didn't. You didn't if there was a bit of skullduggery going on, the last person you're going to tell is the driver. Um, I think there might have been some fuel churns getting swapped around between f- dump churns getting swapped around between fast and slow cars at Le Mans. That, that would be the the only one I did hear about some years later. Well, whilst I remember, you, you spoke at Tom's funeral, and uh, the the thing I remember the most is you were talking about the Bathurst race, and uh, you asked Tom what line to take and he said something along the lines of when the cat wags its tail just follow yeah <laughs> it, yeah it wasn't it wasn't Bathurst because I, I never did that sorry. I'd like, I'd like that, that's on my to-do list Bathurst it, it, okay um which I better hurry up hadn't I <laughs> uh yeah we were we would have been in, in the European Touring Car Championship which I loved that XJS what a magnificent beast that was to drive yeah. seven litres wasn't it yeah you, ju- you just sort of guided that and it did all sorts of things you learned to ignore 70% of its quirky nature and then every so often you're like I need to sort that one out and you, and you, and you really learned to drive I loved that car um, no it, it was it was one of those European Touring Car Championships and Tom was a quick driver he always had the best tyres the best car but wouldn't you if it was your own team yeah and he's like, yep, yeah, when the pussycat wags its tail, it. we, we're, we're off. Yeah. And that was a rolling start thing. So. <laughs> and he, he tried to get me to do the Nürburgring one day. And, um, the old, the Life, which I've just finally learned this, this year just passed. And um, I said, I don't know. I don't know the track, Tom. I'm fed up with my drivers. I want you out there. Um, the plane's on its way. I, I don't know the track, Tom. <laughs> I'll teach you. You follow me. You follow me round. I now realise, of course. Now I do know the track. I would have died. There's no doubt about it. But just follow me. I'll teach the track. So halfway through this event, I'm standing in the pit lane at the Nordschleife, shaking like a leaf, really, uh, in my Jaguar overalls, lid on, ready to go. Tom pulls in, duly, with that sort of grisly sort of grin on his face, sits there ticking over, waiting for the other car to come in, and I'm now about to follow him. I know the first corner's a left-hander because I can see it. <laughs> And I have no idea, I had no idea, uh, you know, there's no PlayStation back in those days to learn it, what happened after that. And I was going to follow him around in that monstrous V12 thing and learn the Nordschleife. Um, and Enzo Calderai was coming in in the other car, I was about to jump in, and he crashed it on the way in. I never got in the car. How much, how much did you pay him to shunt? <laughs> yeah. no, it's, no, I think that was a lucky escape, actually, I now realise. Let me just jump forward a bit. So I want to just talk to you about your transition from from being a, a racer to a commentator because psychologically that must have been difficult for you because I, I got the feeling that you your racing instincts were still there and you still wanted to race cars, but you realised that was the right time to transition away from driving to being a broadcaster. And I, I, but you, 
you were overnight successful and you you won awards straight away for what you were doing. It's funny, isn't it? I think, well, I carried on racing because I, I was completely lost. I thought I was driving for Eddie in 1997. And Louise Goodman, Lou Goodman, who I ended up working with at ITV the following year as well, came up to me with the racing car, what I like to call the racing car show at Birmingham, and said, how much longer are you here for? I said, why, another hour or so? Why, do you need me to do something? She said, no, Eddie's about to announce Giancarlo Fisichella and Ralph Schumacher as his drivers for 97. And that's how I found out I was no longer a Grand Prix driver. Um, it hurt. So I went into the comedy box kicking and screaming. I carried on racing because I drove... For Nissan at Le Mans, 97. Yeah. Toyota in that GT1, that lovely red GT1 yeah. car, 98, 99. Bentley in 2000. Yeah. Would have been in God, that. I forgot about that. You were in that yeah. Bentley as well. Yeah, the first year of the Bentley. And, and I, I did all sorts of things. I started managing David Coulthard. I started doing the telly. I was involved. I was on the board at Silverstone. I became chairman of Silverstone eventually. But was, was all this distraction to try I'm and... I'm just floundering around because I just... Well, I wasn't floundering. I just needed to fill my time. Yeah. Um, and, and my... And all those... All that... Those competitive juices needed to go So All that adrenaline... Has to go somewhere, doesn't it? ...that you become. Yeah. And so I sort of went into the comedy box kicking and screaming. And I'll never forget the first race in Melbourne, uh, 97, when they're, you know, all forming up on the grid. And I just had this awful shouting feeling inside me of stop so i'm not ready you can't go yet i'm not there I, yeah. you can't go without me and then we took off and then the day after the race i started getting these nice comments through and, and i'd i was working with the great murray walker and you know as i often say to people you know having murray learning how to commentate on a motor race with murray walker is like having pele teach you how to kick a ball yeah as far as i'm concerned so it's wonderful wonderful experience and I began to, I think, honestly, I think it's my car selling experience that helped me. I'm a communicator, although I was very shy at school and, I, and I'm fundamentally a shy person. But you learn to read people when they walk in, walk, walk, because I had this philosophy. If somebody's coming on your forecourt or into your showroom, they're going to buy a car. They've made their mind up. They don't do it just for a laugh. They're going to buy a car. They might as well buy it from you. That was, and that's why I sold quite a lot of cars. And I think you learn to read people quite quickly. You learn to communicate. You learn to keep it, keep it simple to, to an extent, you know, not overcomplicate things. But I had dinner with Murray Walker. I'd already said to Steve Ryder, look, pff, I'm doing this telly thing. Where do I, you know, where do I go and learn some basics? And Steve said to me, if you ever find anywhere, let us know, which I thought was quite <laughs> interesting. Yeah. Um, so I had dinner with Murray on the eve of the championship. And I said, oh, what do I need to know, Murray, about this TV lark? And... He said, I can't tell you anything about Formula One, Martin. I said, come on, yes, you can, Murray. You've been around forever, and it's about telly anyway. And he said, uh, I'll just say one thing, and one thing only to you. Remember, we're here to inform and entertain, nothing more. And I thought, that's, I, I remember that to this day, every time I'm in the commentary box, because it's absolutely right. It's not about you. It's not about, it. all it is is just explaining what's happening in the race. Um, don't talk down to people. People know their business. Um you know, people, if they're interested in the sport and they're giving up a chunk of their Sunday afternoon to watch it, you better be adding some information and some entertainment and some knowledge pretty damn quickly because they want to know more about what's going on. And at the same time, you don't want to overcomplicate because you've always got this transition of new Who are you talking to? Are you talking to a specialist or are you talking to someone, a lay person? I find that quite interesting sometimes, the way you position it, because you, you need to be able to 
translate it for the less knowledgeable, but not patronise the more knowledgeable. It's difficult, isn't it? It is in a way, yeah. So you you couch it. What I try, what I try, you'll hear me say occasionally. Look, I know a lot of you know this, yeah. Um, but for those of you who are new to Formula One, welcome. And you know, if it's a dry race, they need to use both of these compound tires. They've got different colours on them. And I think you do need, you have got a transient audience, a, re- a refreshed audience. And I'll never forget watching Super Bowl once, which I didn't, uh, whereas rugby looks like a, a, a fight, a big fight over a ball, American football looked like a big fight over a missing ball. I just didn't understand it. Yeah. And then I saw this sort of idiot's guide on Channel 4 to American football, and, and then I enjoyed it so much. So I think you do need to let people know what they're watching and why in in bite-sized pieces. In, 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 uh, and also, I think, and you'll know this uh, on Top Gear, humour is a wonderful communication tool, isn't it? People yeah. remember one-liners. And, 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 and so do you prepare your one-liners? Have you got, a little, got anything in your back pocket or are they off the cuff? I've never taken a note into a commentary box. Ask that, 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 that shows some skills. Uh, there, you've said, some, you've said some, some top ones. It has to be do, said. Do you, know who I'm, you said, who am I talking to? I'm talking to myself. I just amuse myself. And if people are tuned into your sense of humour, great. Or yeah. and if they're enjoying, if you're adding value to them watching Formula One, great. And there'll be, there'll be people who can't stand you, can't stand your voice, don't like your sense of humour, don't like that. They're, you're bound to get that. I mean, remember, we talked to, I think we go out to 68 countries around yeah. the world. We talked to a lot of people around the world. It's not just the UK. And, and, but back in the day, I mean, BBC, we used to have like 9 million viewers uh, on the peak races. ITV was 6 million. You know, now it's a couple of million um, plus, but a lot, of, a lot more stuff on the digital platforms yeah. as well. But everything's diluted because back in those days, it was 22 million people watching Coronation Street, and that's now sub 10, isn't it, or something? Oh yeah. So it, it, you know, but back then we didn't have Google, um, YouTube. Did we? It didn't have any of that. It didn't have 400, dig, um, you know, satellite channels to choose from. So it, it, it's it's changed massively. But I don't think Murray Walker's advice has changed. It's relevance at all, personally. No, it's interesting. And this is a tough question. How, how do you feel as a driver? I know you're a deeply competitive human being, but you're probably better known now as a broadcaster than you were as a driver. And you might be remembered more as a broadcaster than a driver. Does that smart? Or are you proud of your achievements as a broadcaster? Uh, I've been lucky enough, Chris, to have two careers in Formula One. And, you know, there might be another one yet. Who knows? But it, I can't complain, can I? You know, oh. I had. 150 odd or 160 something starts and I survived to tell the tale I stood on the podium 10 times I learned a lot Um, and why would I complain no my my, it looks like my racing career was a fact-finding mission for my broadcasting career in many respects so take it as it take it as it comes you know in a sports car I I was invincible from time to time, and I, I was outstanding. In a Formula One car, I was not. I was good, but I wasn't great. And that that's what actually hurts me, as I underperformed my... And when I look back, and when I spent some years on the TV, and you know, I think I managed DC for 11 years as well, and being involved in the teams, I, just, I, I saw a load of things. I thought... If I'd known that. Why didn't I do it like that? Yeah. I, sh- you know, I had the talent... The dodgy left ankle didn't help for the left foot braking, but I, I didn't apply. I didn't apply 
I didn't focus hard enough. So the only thing that hurts me is I underperform my ability in a Formula One car. Was I Senna or people like that? Absolutely not. They're, they're once in a generation. We've got two at the moment, actually, as it happens, Leclerc and Verstappen. But they're, you know, they're, they're, they have a gift that's beyond. You can labor, you can get there somehow. But um, I didn't have their talent. But in a sports car, I, I, could, I could beat anybody. Um, let's move on to street cars and motorcycles as well, because one thing that's always attracted me to your broader output of um, in the media is that a lot of racing drivers don't like road cars. They're not interested at all. It's quite disappointing, isn't it? When you, you know you meet a racing driver, you don't want to talk to them about a road car, and they don't give a monkey's. They just want to get something cheap to get them home yeah. again. But you've always liked cars, haven't you? And motorcycles. Oh, God, I love cars. Yeah, I drive. I mean, yeah, I know what you mean. And without naming names, people, there, there are some F1 boys who don't. Don't drive. I mean, Barry Sheen never rode a bike, did he? No. Hardly either. Um, don't. I. I love cars. I absolutely. I have since since I grew up. You know, I walk out of my back door in West Lynn into the used car lot, and I think obviously, and then into the workshop and work work with the guys for the day or something. So, um, I do. I. I cannot wait. I spec things up. I will spend hours on a configurator specking something up. I probably never get. But um, what's the best? What's the most fun road car I've ever owned? The one that you wish you'd never sold. I had a beautiful Eagle E-Type. Um, oh, yes. Yeah, I remember uh, that. Absolute stunner. Um, but I picked up some tinnitus and it, it sort of rattled my ear a little bit. But um, I sold that to a good mate of mine and he still got it. Elvis, it's called. I might buy it back if he ever wants to sell it. Um, <laughs> a car that stands out for me would be a Ferrari 355 manual Berlinetta. Yeah. don't like the floppy ones with the soft tops or whatever. No. Um, that was a great car. Uh, I had a 550 Maranello. I love my DBS that I've got, which I think is probably the best car I've ever had, the DBS. It's an animal, isn't it? Yeah, it's just perfect. It's a great um, It's a great GT car when you want to relax. And then yeah. it's got 700 and God knows what. It'll light them up yeah. in fourth, won't it? Yeah. Everybody wants to race it on the road, unfortunately. They see this beautiful Aston Martin. and they, But, you know, I'm 60 years old. I can turn up in an Aston Martin. I can't turn up in a Ferrari or a Lamborghini. And I'm extremely happy in my scintilla silver DBS. Well, motorcycles, because motor- you came to motorcycles late. But I can remember coming back from Spa in an SLS, having done some junket with Mercedes-Benz, and I'm doing a buck 20 down the outside lane. And this BMW motorcycles just chopped me up the inside, and, I, and it was him. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, I did a great trip this year, Spa to Monza, and then I nearly rode home in one day from Monza. I got a, a big K sixteen hundred, a six cylinder BMW, which is just too big for me. Once once it's rolling, it's great. When it's not rolling, uh, I can, it's, yeah, with my height and size, I can only just keep hold of it. But it's an amazing bit of kit, and I do love. I remember coming out of the commentary box one night in Nurburgring, and I rode home to Norfolk, five hundred miles, Germany, Belgium, France, into the UK. And I got this sort of adventure spirit. I read all the stuff in the bike mags about the, the adventurers. I love all, I'm desperate to do some of that. And I thought, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to Scotland. I'm going to go to Scotland. And, I, and thankfully I didn't because I was battered the next morning. But <laughs> that was after, a, literally, I, I finished commentating on the F1 and rode to Norfolk 500 miles. And I, I, I find the solitude, I love it. It reminds me of being in a racing car. You're looking through the letterbox of a crash helmet. You've got to read the road at all times, otherwise you'll, you'll be off. And there's something visceral about it. So bi- biking, I'm really into. Uh, I, I just get, I love the freedom of it. Um, but I, yeah, my cars. Um, I just I, it goes back. I think to I always had a demonstrator. 
car and everything's for, when you've got car dealerships as you know everything is for sale at all times you know mum would come down she used to do the accounts at the garage like i can't find my car dear oh mum sorry yeah we sold that <laughs> um, we did take your stuff out of it but we had a buyer on that and it's gone and then you'd try and find anything that got a bit of tax in the window maybe um, and if the needle moved anywhere near into the sort of empty zone, yeah. it had enough to get her home and back. And off she, and then we put a new demo. And, you know, I'd have a new car every six weeks or something because you wanted to sell your demos uh, and get them out of the door. Um, so I kind of I got into and racing cars are the same. There's nothing more ugly than last year's racing car. Yeah. Next year's racing car is going to have more power, better suspension. More downforce, you know, it's always looking forward. And I think I'm a bit the same on the, well, I am the same on the road car. Did you buy any of your racing cars? I did. I bought the first Group C Jaguar and it sat in my garage in Norfolk, decaying. And I sold it to Henry Pearman at, at Eagle. Because he um, needed more, didn't he? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he needed some more Group Cs. Um, I wish I'd have kept it, but it, I just looked at it and I thought, what are we going to do with that? It's just, we might have found you, found you a buyer, Henry. <laughs> yeah. it, it needs to move. The car needed to move. Yeah, I've had a few bits and pieces, but I think, and I've got loads of mates in that in that business, loads of mates, and I've just watched them sell cars to other people I know that have you know bought a million pound car and it's now worth ten or something, and you think, why didn't you do that, Martin? But I think I think it's that mentality of next year's racing car or the next demo or, or whatever. So I will, I fancy, I've got my eye out at the moment for a DB4 or a DB5. I really, that, I've really got the hot. A street car or racing car? Um, good question. Why don't, don't we see you at Goodwood? Why don't we see you at places like that? I ha- well, I used to, I used to race there a lot, didn't I? I mean, yeah. you know, one of the greatest privileges of my life was racing Nick Mason's 250 GTO in the TT at, yeah. at Goodwood. I mean, Talk about a challenge. Talk about a responsibility. I think I described it as like having a Picasso under your arm at 150 <laughs> miles an hour. I mean, it and it got about the same value, hadn't it? And you, you're on opposite lock through Ford Water in the yeah. rain in a 50 million dollar car. And Nick was like, "I prefer you didn't roll it over, but have a go. You know, knock it about a bit if you want. I guess if uh, which I find. I think I think today they've started um, making get some replicas of some of those cars, yeah, haven't they? But no comment. Um, but, but but would but, you would you go back there? Be great to see you. Back yeah, there. I, I should go back. I mean, I was in Ray Davis's Austin A35. That was which, of course, reminded me from back when I was seven years old when we had that black one. We used to go around the field in. What a great little car that was. So, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm probably due to go back to go. The problem is the F1 season is now. We used to be finished by mid October. Fifteen or sixteen races, probably ten of which were in Europe. Now we're into next year's a 22 race season. It's crazy. Our last race this season uh, just gone was December the 1st. The first time there'd been a Grand Prix in December since 1963 or something. So um, the the F1 year sort of dominates now. And they're all long hauls. You know, if you look at the last seven, you're flicking around. So you're not looking for other... And I did three races at the Nordschleife this year as well. And I like to go and watch my son race. Yeah. And do a get out on the motorbike. And uh, I've not been in the helicopter lately. And all the things I want to do for myself... I'm not looking to fill in the missing weekends. <laughs> no. Well, so F1, how much longer would you like to carry on in your current role? Oh, I don't know. I think, you know, I fully expected a, to get booted out, to be honest. Um, I hate with to it, point out that you're the best at it, so there's no well, one better than you. I don't know you. about that. I really don't know about that. It's not for me to say. Um, 
and it, you know, there's so many now, so many people doing it. Um, I kind of expected a Jensen or I don't know, or a Nico or a DC or whatever to come along and blow my doors off on it because they've got, you know, they're a lot better looking. They're much, they're much more relevant. They're much more recent, as it were. Um, but I think you broadcasting is a is a separate skill altogether and i think they are all i'll just mentioned they're all great broadcasters I, I think they're you know they tell a really good story in f1 but at some point somebody's going to come along and be like, you know what i think we've heard enough of brundle's one-liners i think we probably we need somebody fresh now how old was murray for his last uh last well, that, commentary see, that's the interesting thing isn't it yeah murray never started a race of any sort that i'm aware of um, he was good on a bike, though, wasn't yeah, he, Murray? Yeah. Very and, uh, good motorcycle racer. He was. A gr- yeah, he, he was. I'm not sure he st- ever started a car race. No, I'm, I don't I'm think not he did. Of. So, uh, and he had all the, and, reta- and retains all the cred in the world, didn't he, Murray? So. Yeah. Uh, one thing I will say to, to people listening, if you want to know more about Murray, go on to the BBC uh, podcast archive and listen to Murray's Desert Island Disc. It's a lovely listen. Mm. It's a really good listen about. Yeah. He speaks about his father and he chokes up yeah. 20 years after his death. Yeah. It's a really lovely listen there. He's sharp as a pin as well, Murray. Is the, I saw him at a dinner recently in his honour at the RAC club. He sat next to Bernie. I sat opposite them. That was a... <laughs> fascinating conversation and I'm talking to Bernie and Murray at the same time but um, he, he's, he's, he's physically struggles a bit these days Murray but he's, he's really sharp as he's a tack. lovely man isn't he oh, a magnificent gorgeous. man and people love him still you know and they want him they to be Sir Murray Walker and all that sort of thing and, and rightly so so um, I, I, I don't know the answer to your question I, I think the game's changing a bit um, it, it's a long season And I've been on this um, hamster wheel, this Formula One sort of merry-go-round, 36 years now or something. Is it it as long as that? Well, I sort of started in 83. I was hanging around it. So, um, Do you become conditioned? Do you become addicted to it, do you think? When I walk into the paddock in Melbourne every year, my shoulders drop, I relax, and it feels like home, second home anyway. I'm like... I'm back where I belong in the paddock of Formula One. So I know everybody. I know which way's up. Um, haven't made too many enemies in the business, which is nice. Um, don't. I, I've got uh, no skeletons in the cupboard. I can. I'll tell it the way it is, which I think people expect me to do. Ruffles a few feathers. I get a few sideways glances from drivers who get sniffy with me. So interrupt there. What's the what? What do you think is the thing that's up? that's upset the apple cart most that you've done? What's the most controversial thing you've done that's, that's generated a response from either a driver or a, a team principal? Well, or Well, funny enough, the, the, guy, it was, uh, the guy who probably had a go at me most was David Coulthard's dad, <laughs> Duncan. He, he was upset because family and friends pick up any negative, they pick it up. You can say a thousand positive things about a driver, and I did about somebody like Michael Schumacher, he didn't talk to me for five years because something I'd said, because I think he's, he, he was out of order when he was running people, which he did to me twice as teammates. When Michael was running people off the road, yeah. I thought it was out of order. Something I said got translated and put into a German newspaper and he was so upset with it. He didn't talk to me for five years. Um, no, the irony about Duncan poking me in the chest and thinking I, wa- I wasn't being upbeat enough about DC is I was... DC's manager at the time. (laughs) I think I used to overcompensate a bit so that I wasn't seen to be biased in his favour. I was probably a little bit 
I probably should have given you a bit more credit, but uh, you've got to. People won't give you a second if they think you're BSing. If they think you're not telling it the way it is, then you've lost your cred overnight. There's nothing you know. You can't do that. You've got even if people don't agree with what your point of view, as long as you're telling it the way you see it. And what you will remember is, I don't have any VAR or like they have in football. I call, we call, yeah. whoever we're working with up in the com box, we call it there and then live. Yeah. We don't have the data, we don't have the revs, we don't have the pedal positions or the steering angle or whatever. And, you, and you've got to call some of these incidents. So you just you go on your instincts and you're not always going to get it right. Of course you're not. So before we wrap up, because we've gone for hours and you've got to get off and see people and so have we. Um, Lewis, what's your thoughts on, on Lewis the way the way he's emerged, the way that he's maintained his career, and, and what his legacy will be. Well, as always, I think with great sportsmen uh, and women and oh, movie stars, I don't know, maybe musicians, they don't seem to be appreciated until they stop or they're gone, uh, gone, gone. Um, I, what impresses me is he's still got the mental and physical condition, agility. The need. Now, he's got enough cash in the bank. Does he need to do any of this? Of course, he doesn't need to. He just wants to. And he's just relentless. He, he just keeps delivering. He is the only... He's box total box office. More box office for Formula One than all of the other drivers put together, I do you would think, say. Do you think he has as greater effect on the sport as Rossi does on a MotoGP? Yes. Yeah, without without doubt. And I think you have to go back to the real characters of the 60s and 70s, or maybe even the 50s as well, where, where they were household names, weren't they? Because it was such a pioneering business back then. So, um, you know, Lewis's talent is just, just outstanding. Um, when he's moaning and groaning on the radio a bit, sometimes you think, why? Why do you do that? You don't need to do that. Everybody thinks you're amazing anyway. You don't need to couch anything. But as I always often say, you can't take the... You can't just cherry pick the bits you like of great people like Lewis Hamilton. They come as a package. Nigel Mansell would be another good example of that, wouldn't it? Our Nigel. Um, you know, they are what what makes them who they are and what they achieve is the is the whole of their personality. So um, that that is Lewis. That's how he performs. And and he'll be thirty five in January. And you know, they still can't really beat him over a season. He's he's outstanding. Do you think over a lap Verstappen and Leclerc are probably quicker? Or do you think, or, yeah, or do you think, think Lewis now, has still got them? I think now. I mean, Lewis tops the pole table, doesn't he? 88 um, off the top of my head. So, right now, uh, this would be something that would annoy Lewis a lot. But in a way, if you're looking forward, and these teams do look a long way forward, and I think that's probably why Lewis is um, scouting around and seeing what the options are. Um, you know, moving forward, you, you've got to think, your 21 and your 22 year olds like Leclerc and Verstappen they're yeah. the ones you've got to have in harness for the next five years yeah um, what about and what about Vettel's season I mean as, as a sort of post blown diffuser I find his career completely baffling I really do I, it's, it's extraordinary really yeah I know how hard F1 is so to, to turn up I think he's I think he's got a, he had a 25% winning rate and a 50% hit rate on podiums and he's four-time world champion. That's a good driver. It's a great racing driver. Uh, stunning. Um, right place, right time. 
well, you could say that about Lewis. The greatest drive, the best drivers end up in the best cars. The cream yeah. cream rises to the top. So you can't take anything away from him. What I think he's always had is a lack of, somehow a lack of judgment in wheel-to-wheel combat. And it's showing up more and more as he gets older. He's still got the speed. I mean, yeah. his, his some of his quality laps are outstanding. I, I just, uh, you know, lightning fast. So I think he's got the pace. You wouldn't write him off. Um, and you wouldn't change him in a hurry for an unknown, but he's clearly the be- his best is behind him, isn't it? Yeah, and and he he has been rattled by this sensational youngster Leclerc. Yeah, because he? they come along and it's so easy for them. You know, they've they've got the pace. They they make they make a few mistakes, but um, yeah, yes. Seb's a sort of I like Seb a lot. A big motorbike man as well. And, yeah, uh, Carmen got a, he keeps it all very quiet, but he's got a fantastic collection of classic motorbike you get the feeling he's the one that i want to go and have dinner with because he seems like a probably rounded human being that has a sort of curiosity about life outside of formula one he's an adult he won't be playing playstation all night long he'd actually sit and talk to you yeah uh now that do you know what they're all they're all great guys they're uh, almost all of them you you would be very happy to go out to dinner with there you know they've got a story to tell um and and they're characters so um i i don't I don't like criticising any Formula 1 driver because I know how hard it is to get there and I know it's much harder still to stay there and let alone go on to take championships and victories and all that. I, I won't, I will not write them off. I think that's really important and as someone, you won't remember, many years ago, some f- a friend of yours called Paul who had a old Jaguar Formula 1 car, he wanted to do a Formula 1 racing experience yeah. and he stuck it on some Avon slicks yeah. and I came to Silverstone to drive it and you were there. Yeah. You drove it for a couple of laps and handed it to me. I never in sat the snow. in. It, it was snow north degrees. The there was, and um, and I spun the thing twice. Uh, and I at that moment I realised that anyone that can drive a Formula One car without crashing it is a hero, frankly. And to do it wheel to wheel with twenty five other lunatics around you with such reduced visibility. I'm in awe of them. So I, even the guys at the back, I'll never laugh at them. If someone, if someone points at some at the back and goes, they're a load of rubbish, I just say, you have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, try, try Monaco on a wet day or, you know, back, back in the day when well, Mon, Mons are on a wet day, when you're listening to the car in front, you can't see anything. You can't see your own dashboard. Uh, and you're literally, you've got, you, your peripheral vision goes into hyper mode and you start imagining reference points you think you know about where the braking you know breaking marker boards might be or whatever and then as you as you lift off the throttle all the spray dies down doesn't it as the speed dies down and it's like somebody's switching the lights on and it's like then you realize you're 200 meters too early for the corner and off you all go again but you literally can't see it. and when you know whether you're a racing driver or not is if you press the throttle a bit harder in those moments you're still a racing driver if you lift you're not a racing driver anymore Martin, that's um, fascinating chat. I hope everyone's enjoyed that. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure meeting you over the years. I hope you continue doing the F1 commentary. Also, can you do another Martin Brundle supercar video? Remember that? Yeah, but uh, come on. How would I compete with you guys? Uh, we need to get you on the show. Off. Can I get you to come on the show and do a lap around the track? Come yeah. on, we go. Okay, yeah, I'm going to get that in motion. Old Clarkson would never have me on the place. Would he not? No. Nah. He's gone now. He's got, his, he's got a new show. <laughs> we'll get you on there. Yeah. Um, so uh, thank you so much, everyone. Have a very Merry Christmas. Um, and just to let you know, there's going to be a few things changing on collecting cars next year. Uh, some people coming onto the team, and I think the site is growing and, and the success of it is surprising both myself and Edward. Um, yeah, so have a, have a lovely break uh, and we will see you in the new year. Thank you, Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Merry Christmas.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.